0: Welcome to Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. This program is part of a series of podcasts doing in-depth interviews on free enterprise and personal liberty. I'm your host, Danielle Smith, President of the Alberta Enterprise Group. Go to FraserForum.org where you can subscribe, comment on the program, and see links to the studies we discuss. You will also find archives of previous episodes. Our email address is Danielle at FraserForum.org. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, The idea that now
1: leisure is so cheap. While we're also incredibly more productive, the two are being somewhat tied together. You know what? It's so cheap to enjoy, now because we're so productive, video gaming tournaments are the best illustration. There is people who invest in the leisurely act of competing in video game tournaments that is the illustration of the such great productivity that we can enjoy so much leisure that in effect, we are actually right now working the equivalent of four days a week.
0: Hello, welcome to another edition of Danielle Smith's Fraser Forum. I'm delighted today to be speaking with Vincent Loso. He is a professor of economics at George Mason University and as well a senior fellow at the Fraser Institute. Vincent, thank you so much for being with me today. It's a pleasure, Danielle. So uh, we're going to talk a lot about uh, daycare. We're going to talk a bit about competition. We're going to, if we have the time, talk about a four-day work week. But I wanted to to start off talking with you about the nature of work and the nature of sort of this work leisure trade-off. Because I think a, a lot of times we get into discussing policy solutions, but I'm interested in knowing what policy problems we're trying to address with those solutions. So so do we have a problem with work effort? Do we need to have government creating policies to poke people to get into the workplace? What What is this work leisure trade-off all about? What does the empirical data show?
1: So while every person is different in where they would have the tipping point I'm about to describe, everyone has that tipping point. The idea being that when we decide to work, what we are forsaking is free time. Uh, but when we take free time, what we are forsaking, because there's a mirror to this, is that we are forsaking uh, the goods we could consume by working at an hour and earning some, uh, some income in that hour of work. But the idea is that at one point, eventually, I, we are so productive from an hour of work that we actually might take more leisures as our wages become higher and higher, and we're assuming here that wages reflect productivity. And just like as a thought experiment, imagine that tomorrow morning, you are able to produce in one hour of work, the income necessary to satisfy your consumption of food, shelter, and clothing for a year in one one hour. Would In the end of the year, would you work more? Would you work less? We're assuming from what we are levels of productivity today, levels of wages, to that high of a level of a wage per hour, a lot of people would – some people might actually work more now because they say I can satisfy higher material ends that I want. But some people might actually say I want to enjoy more leisure. The idea is that the labor – your curve of labor supply – eventually and you can imagine that there's a relationship between how many hours you work and how high your wages are for some time your wages will go up and they will go up with uh, your higher wages will make your quantity of work go up but eventually higher wages will make your quantity of work go down now workaholics have a tipping point that's much further away people who are more spiritual will have maybe a tipping point that's further to the left and the idea here is that everyone has that that trade off and what determines how far the tipping point is and where you are on that curve is general productivity in the economy, how much you produce in an hour of work, because mm-hmm. that hour of work is what goods you command in terms of consumption from working.
0: Does have anything to say about some of the intangibles that people get out of work? I've often wondered what motivates some of the billionaires of the world, some of these big tech giants, what motivates them to get up for work in the morning? Because it's obviously something that goes beyond how productive they are and how much money they have. There's something else there. Is there any way to quantify that aspect of it?
1: So this is where there's a lot of mythology about economics, because people assume that when we talk productivity, we talk about how many widgets you produce per hour, but that's not exactly true. What we talk about when we talk about productivity is how much value is generated and value being subjective to every individual. Value could be, for example, if we're so productive in an hour of work that we can satisfy this much demand for, say the housing example that we gave, uh, you could decide to create value to yourself by going on vacations, by learning a particular art skills, Uh, You could invest in some form of personal achievement. This is why economists, when they talk about productivity as wealth creating, this is the mechanism by which we can create more wealth. Wealth is not just stacks of little pieces of paper that we put in a bank account and then they become zeros on a ledger. That's not what they are. Wealth is our ability to enjoy a greater set of choices. These choices could include more material consumption, but it could include non-material form of consumptions. And we can just think about like an, an image because my field of specialty in economics is competition tier, like micro, but also applied to historical questions. Imagine how many choices of spiritual goods, or you could say art consumption or leisure, family investments, people in 1800, farmers in the middle of Ontario were all opening farms back then. How much leisure do you think they had? How much time for personal self fulfillment on very individual, like very specific to an individual person's margins would be that wasn't an option. But today, the idea that you can uh, even participate in the idea of taking a few hours of work of like when of your time when you're not working because you're so productive you can go on Coursera or udemy and learn a new skill you can go and see someone to talk about spirituality you can see like this idea i I keep referring to this because the idea of spirituality is yours it's not like because i care about it that much because it opens the idea that wealth is our ability to exercise ways that we we fulfill ourselves in in terms of, sat- of utility to what matters to us. It's not just more widgets. Now, some people like more widgets. I like stuff. I'm one of those persons. I'm a workaholic, I work very long hours, and I like to have those little goods. But the reality is some other people are workaholics because what they wanna buy with their greater productivity is a simpler life. They wanna buy fewer hassles. They wanna be able to just solve problems by saying, just here's money, leave me alone right? Sometimes it's that some people, it's uh, the ability to um, to spend time freely enjoying what makes life worth living. And actually, here's an even better example. Think about the proportion of people who produce forms of arts, writings, poems, uh, uh, paintings, what proportion of these people can actually not necessarily live gloriously, but at least meet their basic standards food shelter uh clothing relative to say a hundred years ago if you look at for example the biography of great artists uh some of them worked as insurance underwriters at the same time and weren't able to dedicate themselves entirely to their craft you will find names of great authors in the united states mark twain edgar Allan poe in canada you'll find that uh, stephen peacock was had another career at the same time because in those periods It was impossible to live and actually dedicate yourself to something that was fulfilling on another margin full time. Now it's actually possible, not necessarily gloriously, but much better than in the past to dedicate yourself fully to an art and live off of it. And that is an illustration of what the massive increase in productivity between 1800 and today, because people don't notice that. But on average in Canada, take the average worker, you take his hour of work today, it is 25 times greater. Than it was in 1800 so we are producing 25 times more than 1800 that means that we have 20 times times more choices to which that we have access to to make our lives better now it can be material can be immaterial can be spiritual can be non-spiritual can be any form you care but economists are actually able to talk about this it's just that when we teach it it's long you notice that we we've just like spent two minutes maybe more explaining this, but in classrooms, like at one point, I have to say, here's the dollar sign. And we're just gonna say that it simplifies the conversation, right? Because we have to keep moving, right? I have 150 hours to teach you this stuff, right? So let's just get through this. And like, we we have to make some abstractions here because otherwise we're just never gonna be able to finish. But- It's such a good point.
0: my, my stepson ended up getting a fine arts degree and we thought, uh-oh, but he's gone on to be a tattoo artist and quite a successful tattoo artist. And he's probably going to be a business owner one day, probably not a job that existed back in the 1800s. No. But I guess that's the, that's the other interesting part of it, isn't it? Is that a lot of our economic theory gets handed down and yet society is changing so quickly. I, I didn't think we'd start off talking about the four-day work week, but maybe it's a good time for us to delve into that a little bit because I... I wonder how much demand there is for that based on the conversation that we're having. Is is that when, when Fraser did the book on it and proposed a four-day work week, where do you think, what, what problem is that trying to solve? Is it that there is more demand for people to have more time so they can do all those other things we talked about, whether it's per, pursue a spiritual life or pursue... A hobby or navigation or or art, or is there some other reason why we would be looking at at, at potentially encouraging government to go in that direction? What what's the impetus behind behind talking about a four day work week?
1: So I want to make a nuance here: four day work week not legislated, but made uh, a, an effective possibility because people have this choice because they're so productive. And just to, to give you an idea of what we mean by a four day work week here, uh, in eighteen seventy, the average worker was working more than three thousand hours a year. There is, and that's for our, pretty much every OECD country. There is no country in the OECD today where the average number of work hours worked per worker is greater than two thousand. That is a one-third reduction in a span of a century and a half close to. The idea here is why would you have that? Because you're so much more productive that you are facing basically the idea that the marginal utility from one extra good is not the same as the first one. So people who are extremely poor, the extra wages give them so much more extra goods. But when you are so rich because you are so productive, the extra good, the extra widget isn't getting you that much. Mm-hmm. Right? The extra hour of work that you'd have to sacrifice relative to all you can do with your leisure is is not worth the same. And the idea and the other part that people tend to forget is that leisure has also become incredibly more, and this is a weird thing because we also have to imagine the cost of leisure. Yes, we have to forsake things, but leisure, there's also things that you have to pay to access leisure, like buying an Xbox, because I'm a particular, like I'm still, in spite of my age, a gamer, I still play video games. But for example, you look at the price, even without adjusting for inflation, the price of video consoles have fallen Dramatically, gaming consoles are down, televisions are down, uh, access to the range of goods, right? Just think about the cost of like a Netflix uh, subscription versus going to the good old-fashioned blockbuster and renting the same movies at $3.99 a pop. Uh, The idea that now leisure is so cheap, while we're also incredibly more productive, the two are being somewhat tied together. So what's happening is that the curve I've described earlier is that as we become productive, we move along the curve. But in a weird way, we're actually also shifting the curve a bit so that the tipping point happens at lower and lower levels of wages so that some people can actually say, you know what, it's so cheap to enjoy now because we're so productive. We can enjoy like a better life because we can enjoy leisure. We can spend time with our kids. We can uh, invest in Heck, even the idea that people can spend eight hours at video game tournaments—that's that's what I should go video gaming tournaments, right? Even the best illustration: there is people who invest in the leisurely act of competing in video game tournaments. That is the illustration of the such great productivity that we can enjoy so much leisure that, in effect, we are actually right now working the equivalent of four days a week. But it we is, are, you know.
0: It's such a, it's such a good example too. Um, I, I'll give you a, a video game tip. If you, if you give me one Red Dead Redemption, I was told to get it for my husband for, for Christmas one year. And we just marveled that one $75 game. game was able to give him literally days and days and days of fun playing, playing the game. Anyway, you're going to give me a, your, uh, your best recommendation at the end of it, but right. but, sure. or maybe you can give it now. Do you have one now?
1: I'm a big fan of Star Wars Battlefront too. I've been playing okay, the one since 2015. I still can't stop.
0: <laughs> now I know I'm getting him for Christmas. But but it is interesting because I th- I think that this is the other part of it is that you g- just gave another really good example. There are some gamers who are making a career out of what started out as a leisure activity because of the awards that they're winning out of it. And so and, and we all have this huge discussion going on about a fourth industrial revolution and the way in which technology is going to transform the workplace once again, make uh, jobs no longer uh, available or relevant, or as uh, or I, I suppose as, as readily available. And I, I'm wondering if you have, uh, if what, if we're going to, what we might see develop out of that? Um, is, there, is there anything that, that you can, uh, if you could imagine 200 years from now, are we going to be talking about having a, a thousand hours a year of work? Are we going to see the number of hours of of productive work reducing even more? Is there any way to, to know if there's some kind of optimal level of work-life balance?
1: I'm not, big fa- I'm not a big fan of doing predictions about the future, which is why my field of expertise in economic, as I said, is economic history. So it's easier for me to look back. But even looking back, it's actually quite easy to be optimistic uh, because people underappreciate how much human progress there has been. So like we've mentioned, like for example, the number of hours work, but that proportion actually doesn't capture everything because we're capturing people who are presently working, but we're not capturing the fact that we live much longer now. So we actually retire and get actually to spend some time in retirement rather than dying at work, which was what most people did in the past. And not only that, but now we also enter the workforce, not at 14 or 15, like my dad did when he was a kid or my mom did. Uh, I entered the workforce at 21. Uh, uh, That is a very massive difference in a lifetime. When you're considering the difference in times of work and if you look at the proportion of your life awake so we assume throughout your life that you sleep on average eight hours a day which is not exactly true for parents uh but it it averages out when you include the years of teenagers uh, but that joke being put aside because i'm a, I'm a young parent myself eight hours <laughs> is clearly something I, I would dream for but if you take you take that the idea that presumption there is 16 hours left a day of, of time awake, what proportion of that time in your entire life do you spend working and not working? And in 1850 and in the 1870s, we were talking about roughly 75% of that time was spent working. Today, we are talking to roughly less than 45%. Huh.
0: So
1: we are spending more of our lives now in leisurely pursuits than we we are before, and if actually we check assumptions about sleeping, people actually do get to sleep more now than they did in the past. So people don't notice that, but people in the past actually had really low quality sleep. There's actually some of my colleagues who work on that. There's a field that's called economics and human biology, where we try and make some inferences about uh, because there's biological ramifications of poor sleep quality. We can have some ideas of how much people could sleep in the past or using time diaries. And we know that people in the past actually didn't get the chance to sleep as much as, as we do today. So that 45% might even be even lower than, uh, than that. So that we spend the vast majority of our lives today in, in rich, productive countries in leisurely pursuit. And that's because we are productive not because we've legislated something into existence that we've legislated. Because if it had been this easy, farmers in the Middle Ages would have asked for legislation asking them not to work that much if it was that easy. Uh, But the reality is that what makes it possible is our productivity. Our productivity makes it possible for us to increase the choices that we can exercise, the sets of choices that we have available. And that includes the choices where we take more times for ourselves.
0: It's remarkable the way you put that, too, because it's not just um, that we're working fewer hours in a day and fewer days of the week, but we're also entering the workforce later and leaving earlier. So I, I guess from what I've heard you say, we'll probably see a number of those factors continue, shorter work days, shorter yep. work weeks, and also the a shorter period of time of, of productive work over our lifestyle or over, yes. over our lifetime.
1: And actually, as a kind of a neat a little thing, there's there this economist, John Maynard Keynes, who I'm not generally fond of, but he made in 1920s a prediction saying that by the year 2000, we'd be working 15 hours a week. And a lot of people have made fun of him because it didn't materialize, but actually it did. Because if you take that proportion that I've just mentioned, that we work so few hours that we uh, in a year, that we work so few years, that we work... And, and you adjust so that even if you arrive you make all these corrections right so throughout your entire life so you try to average it out over a lifetime you actually are getting very close to 15 and let's say you include for example the quality of the work so you don't you try and see how hard the work is you try to like weigh down the fact that my grandfather was working in southern Italy as backbreaking work farming that actually like hurt him that was physically painful. And uh, my dad was working in an, an office. I am uh, standing in front of students, telling them that economics is great if you adjust for like the enjoyability factor of work, so that it's like you are less taxed, so that when you leave work, you actually can enjoy leisure because you're not physically exhausted to the point of being physically broken. Then you actually could get something that speaks to the 15 hours a week average the idea is we're very close to this prediction so when people say like where would we be in 100 years i don't exactly know but i am very optimistic because the long-run trend over two and three centuries of human history where we've had this incredible boom in productivity that started with the industrial revolution we have never enjoyed such an unparalleled increase in our ability to have free time and i don't see things that are I see things that are slowing it down, that are slowing down these increases, but not to the point of stopping them. So I am optimistic. I don't want to make a prediction, but I am optimistic.
0: It's it's an interesting conversation because I think we we always look to government to solve problems of equity. And I think the way you framed this out is fascinating to see just how much things have improved. If we, If we all were to take a a time machine and go back 200 years and think of the kind of work and the kind of hours we would have been doing 200 years ago i think it's it's very eye-opening but we're almost now though at a point where we're not working enough to pay for all the government programs that we want and i, I want to transition into the talk about daycare because i'm, I'm sure that that is Part of the the notion behind why it is we need to have, according to some politicians and political leaders, why we need to have a subsidized universal daycare program is they're thinking, we need to get more people working longer hours in those prime earning years because we need to generate more tax revenue so that we can pay for all of the programs that we have. I don't know that there's a single government in Canada that is um, in a balanced budget situation uh, or or the, whose finances are looking great especially i suppose post covid but and so the talk about a a quebec style daycare program is is taking place at the federal level it's a little annoying in alberta because alberta had asked for the same kind of proposal that quebec had which is we'll opt out of the program just give us the money alberta asked for the same thing and they were told no because you're not doing it the way the federal government or the way quebec is doing it and so we need to understand a bit about some of the reasons behind that how the quebec program is structured what problem it is that they're trying to solve so let's begin with the issue of uh, equity when it comes to women. Um, is it, I mean, can you look at the data and see that women would make different choices because of the, the fact that they're uh, managing childcare issues and that there is a policy need to try to equalize the, the playing field? Can, 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 can we map that out a little bit to understand why this program um, is gaining so much traction?
1: Okay, so the idea that generally comes in with daycare is that in our discussion of like labor, leisure, leisure trade off, there is an extra cost to women of going into the workforce, which is that uh, they are the ones that are actually are bearing the majority of uh, of the child rearing decisions, largely for just biological reasons of pregnancy. and for that reason, there's this assumption that uh, they're going to be penalized by leaving the market for a year or two, so that there's a what we call scarring effects that happen on their earnings. So they enter, like they lose potential experience, they, disc- they grow disconnected in very fast paced fields uh like law or uh financial practices uh there might be like actual financial losses for uh, earn potential earning losses for for women and so we say but there's still like people who are like women who are trained in law have immense human capital and the assumption is that okay well how do we get them back into the, the labor force because we don't want that human capital to depreciate one Potential issue. One, one issue that's argued is that the cost for women of re entering the market is the child care cost. So that for them, it actually, even though they'd be willing to do it at the prevailing market wage, the mar- prevailing market wage has to be somewhat deflated by the proportion that of these extra wages that will go to, uh, to child care. So in these situations, a lot of women who are very potentially productive workers who are very highly skilled will not re-enter the workforce and so will have larger scars in uh by staying longer out of the market than say like like say the the last one, the pregnancy a month or two after after birth. Uh the idea is that they stay longer because the cost of re-entering the the workforce does not make up the eats up too many of the wage benefits that they'd get. Do Um, we have
0: any good data on that to know if there is an optimal period of time to be out of the workplace and not lose that advantage versus how long is too long? It's a a strange argument to be made because especially when we have all the technological change we were just talking about, I have been told that. I think that even a four year degree program, the doubling of knowledge is taking place so quickly that what you need to learn by the end of a four year degree is completely different than when you started. And so in, in some ways, all of us have to, uh, have to keep our skills up in this really fast paced world. And I I wonder if there is some some way of of wrapping our heads around how how much time can you take out of a job for whatever reason with before you start having that that scarring effect you're talking about.
1: It's it's it very much varies according to the profession. So for example, mm-hmm. uh, I remember one article I can't see it at the top of my head what, what journal it was in, but it showed that women in law actually had very big scars very early on. Uh, from practice, but in other fields like nursing, the scars were not that big and took a long time to materialize. So there was a longer time that was able to take off. Mm-hmm. Uh, high school teaching also had a difference, but there were some domains in which uh, uh, women actually did suffer important scars from exiting, from being out of the market for for a long period. So it's not uniform for everyone. Uh, it's also not necessarily uniform for every worker within the field. So what I'm describing are what you could call average effects uh, they're indicative, but it doesn't mean that it's like the same for everyone. Uh, so I, I'd be careful about how big of a scar, but the idea here from people, so we represent their argument properly is that by subsidizing daycare, uh, especially for low income households who still have like very high, like earning potentials, uh, uh, you are making it possible for them to re-enter the labor market and so not suffer the the earnings loss so that you have a program that helps them send their kids to, to daycare. And as a result, you get, by virtue of subsidizing, uh, you get an increase in the labor force participation of uh, mothers with young age kids so we're talking about uh, mothers with kids between say six months and five years old so every, everything before they enter maybe even six everyone in that uh, group which is where you find uh for women if you actually take profile of labor force participation by the 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 age of women but you adjust for whether or not they have kids Women in child-rearing age who have kids between two and five, there's a big dip in their, their labor force participation, largely because the cost of rearing kids is, I mean, I find it hard as, an, as a, as a fodder. I can't imagine, like, I try to imagine how much my wife is, is finding it difficult, uh, but it's, it is incredibly costly on, in terms of uh, personal engagement, uh, the cost of daycare, according to the proponents of subsidized daycare, is that you are reducing a cost that makes it harder for women to who have young kids to re-enter the labor market. That's their argument. Uh, and it's not a bad one because costs do matter, right? People are, sense if you reduce the cost of something, people will do more of it. If you increase the cost of something, people will do less of it. So if you reduce the cost of essentially returning to the labor force, it makes sense that you could say that there is bound to be a greater proportion of mothers who will return to the labor force.
0: It's so interesting because I think in some ways we we have policy that might be in conflict with each other. And so I'm sort of trying to wrap my head around what, what the best policy might be, because when my mother was having children maternal leave, and it wasn't available to men as well, but maternal maternity leave was only three months. So there was some expectation that you'd get back into the workforce quickly over time it's now spread, you can you can take your benefits and spread them out over two years. And so the idea of having a subsidized daycare program, because we've got to get women back into the workforce as quick as possible, and wait a minute, we want you to stay at home as long as possible uh, in those first two years to make it easier for you. Those seem to be in conflict with each other. That's why I'm trying to wonder what the what the principal objective of government is when they're setting policy. Um, Can can you elaborate on on why we have what looks like a bit of a a bipolar type of approach to this?
1: I, (laughs) okay, so you're asking me about politics. This is where I am am woefully (laughs) uh, ill-equipped. So you think (laughs) it
0: is just politics? Like there wouldn't be any reason why, um, you know, the first two years we, we don't, may I, if you could talk to me about the scarring effect and two years is sort of, they've determined that that actually, the benefits of being at home with the child outweigh the risk of losing your, your your position in the workplace there would be some sense around that um but i but it also then could imply um if you if you want to provide income support especially now that we're coming out of the post-covid era where we're providing people two thousand a month you could say Why don't we just extend that type of approach and allow women to stay home for three years or four years or five years until their kids are able to go into school and then they can make the transition. I'm just trying to to figure out how, do we we build on the program that we have with the existing leave or do we try to extend the Quebec-based program? I'm trying to to think through what would be an optimal type of approach depending on what it is we're trying to achieve. There's
1: multiple threads here that we have to disentangle. So the first one is why do we have conflicting policies? I think here it's easy for me as an economist does public choice theory. So the politics, the economics of politics, generally when I find policies that are schizophrenic, bipolar as you call them, uh, it's generally not good to look at it from the perspective of what makes sense economically in the sense of outcomes, but in the sense of what makes sense from the incentives of uh, politicians. Uh, What are their incentives? And in this situation, generally, that is more easier to explain. Uh, Here, we expect parents are generally uh, 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 bigger voters. They're more active. They are generally a bit richer. They have a series of certain behaviors that correlate with political success if you are able to cater to them. So that's that's how I would Mm -hmm. explain the weird set of policies. But uh, the second thread is why would how much would subsidized daycare matter? I think this is where it doesn't matter that much because there are, if the objective, because the way I've simplified it earlier is what we care about is the cost of going back to work. Now, there is a series of ways we can alter that cost. Subsidizing daycare might be one of them, but there might be other ways that would actually be cheaper. So, for example, uh, my friend Diana Thomas from Creighton University in Nebraska, what she did, uh, she actually checked at uh, regulations in the United States at the state level. And uh, they're essentially ch- uh, regulation on childcare provision, so child staff ratios, degree requirement. Uh, the regulations that actually, by the way, are not very well correlated with the quality of the service because mm-hmm. they're just the ones that regulators can understand. So when the bureaucrats are designing the rules with the politicians, they're the ones that they can actually make legible, even though they might not necessarily matter that much on the ground. But these regulations have a massive impact on cost. Uh, so, for example, just allowing one extra kid per uh, – sorry, one edu- uh, one extra kid per educator – uh, could reduce cost on average of roughly ten percent. So if hmm. you say daycare is too expensive, which makes sense, it's, it is very ex- well. I'm not saying it's too expensive. I'm saying it's the market price now for some person is too ex- for some people is too expensive to return to the labor force. I should be precise as an economist. But if you if you care about reducing that cost, one way to do so is maybe remove some burdensome regulations. That would be one way of reducing the cost of so that women would re-enter the workforce. Another way is that, for example, one of the big costs for daycare is rent and shelter. And in cities like uh, Vancouver, Toronto, where housing and land use regulations are so high that they drive up rents, they drive up accidentally, uh, child care costs. So, for example, in the United States, when you check uh, uh, low or regulation areas in terms of land use, so how easily you can use land and create extra new services, build new buildings, you find that their care costs are heavily affected by land use regulations. Uh, so if you care about reducing it, maybe some other measures on the side would matter more. So for example, like I used to be, before I was at uh, George Mason, I was at Texas Tech. So I'm a Quebecer that keeps going to the United States. Uh, but at Texas Tech, the daycares in Lubbock, Texas, which is a small city, but that has basically no regulation whatsoever. It is the most w- weirdly built city. But the, the reality is that you can get a, a, ch- a center-based daycare for $700 uh, a month over there, which is uh, incredible because in other cities like Fairfax, Virginia, where I am uh, now, uh, daycare costs run in excess of $1,500. And it's one of the most regulated cities in the United States. So here you have another way. If you deregulated land use, you would reduce the cost of child care accidentally. But you know the biggest cost for uh, for people of going to work is paying income taxes. Ah, uh, yes. So if you care about – if you're saying to people you are – are you are, it's costly for you to go to work because of childcare. well, what you're saying is actually no, is that the wage benefit of going to work are too small relative to the cost. Well, when, what's one of the costs? One of the costs is the income tax that you're taking from them. So maybe income taxes would actually be one way to go at it, reducing them. Uh, and actually, if you notice that the, in the empirical literature, uh, women are much more sensitive than men to reductions in tax cuts, uh, like a ratio of two to one. So if you reduce tax cuts, if you cut taxes by roughly like, say, 1%, you'll find that men increase their labor supply, their hours work by somewhere between 0.2 and 0.3%. If you do the same reduction for women, it will be between 0.3 and 0.6%. So women generally will have twice the the sensitivity of men to taxes. So if you reduce income taxes or payroll taxes, you will find that more women will, you'll find a differential effect where more women will increase. There'll be more increased participation from from women than men. Uh, And that's largely driven, by the way, when we broke down the data, we actually find that it's generally driven by mothers. Uh, mothers are even more sensitive, young young age kids, mothers to young age kids are even more sensitive to, to tax cuts. So the idea here is from people who talk about subsidized daycare, what they're, 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 I think, I'm not refuting their argument that subsidizing daycare will not cause women to return to work. It will cause some women to go to work. But you have to compare it with policy alternatives. And the other policy alternatives are generally, they, they kick they kick butts. They are very, very, very effective. Uh, And the reason why is that when you actually, and there's a Statistics Canada paper on that, when you actually ask mothers to rate the costliest, the the biggest barriers for them of returning to work, childcare costs, they do come in pretty big, but they're only third or fourth on the list behind, uh, for example, transit costs or uh, time commuting or taxes.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. Okay, you've put a lot on the table here, and one more, uh, one more vein I want to explore because when we're talking about where the impetus for these kinds of policies come from, is and this is the cynic in me, is that it it often seems like it is being pushed by a labor group with the idea that we'll end up with a single style of government-run unionized workplace. And then when you start playing around with staff ratios, that kind of explains the regulatory aspect. Because if you say you can only have six children for every caregiver or five children for every caregiver, that just increases the number of people that you have to hire to be able to meet those regulations. Or increase and so this the cost. is, Or increase costs exactly. So I'm wondering when we look at the Quebec environment, what the principal driver was when that, that I think it was initially introduced as a $5 a day daycare program. Yeah. Was it being driven from mums asking for it, from governments needing the revenue, or from labor groups saying, we want to be able to have more workers providing this service? Uh, there was every there,
1: there was a mixture of all of these. There were clearly uh, families uh, in Quebec who were arguing that childcare was expensive and that the previous system was a, a bit of a mess because there was a system of tax credits that was uh, income that was fixed according to people's income level and the payment was once a year. There was some arguments that it, it created some problems. Uh, labor unions were pretty big on it. Uh, so there was a mixture of, and this is generally the case with policies. Some people who are generally very well meaning, uh, who are what we could call public interest uh, justifications. But then you always have some people you could call, as an economist, we call them public choice or slash rent seekers. It's people who have actually some incentive in the policy being enacted, not from a virtue of arguing for societal welfare, but from the perspective of their own group or individualistic uh, perspective, that the policy is in their favor. And from this unions in Quebec, I've definitely uh, won uh, a lot from from the, the program. But the thing that people need to understand is that the program, so one big paper that keeps getting cited, but that no one actually in the literature, you know, so people who publish in peer reviewed journal, actually cite or actually cite to basically take it around the block like a dead horse and beat it until it's dead or use it in classrooms to show how you not do certain work To, for good economics. Uh, it said that there was from Quebec that the, day, the subsidized daycare in the 1970s had the effect of on net causing 60,000 women to return to the labor force. And with that 60,000 extra mutters on the labor force annually, you get uh, so much more income for the government. Uh, that actually the program paid for itself. Uh, the reason, first of all, when people revisited this, uh, first of all, when they made that calculation, they assumed that the women who entered the labor force had the same wages as people who were previously in the labor force. And that's incorrect, that the margin you expected that women who were deterred by childcare costs of entering probably had were facing lower potential wages than otherwise would be the case. As soon as you corrected for that, it the effect disappeared. It actually became a net drag. But actually, the other reason is uh, there is what we call a, uh, so this is, I'm going to try and not make this too technical. Uh, What we have, so when we do estimation of the causal effect of a policy, we need to have a proper identification strategy. And that looks like a lab experiment. We need to have one place that gets a policy or a treatment, like, you know, like people get a drug. And there's a group that's the placebo group that doesn't, that's a control group that doesn't get the treatment you need to make sure that there is n- nothing else that would conflate the results. So you say the group that gets the treatment, so Quebec, the treatment it gets in the, the 1990s is subsidized daycare at $5 a day. If you need to have all the other provinces not have that, but also not have other policy changes that work in the same direction, because you want to attribute whatever change that happened in Quebec that don't happen in elsewhere to be assigned exactly to the policy. The problem is that is not the case. At the same time in the 1990s, the federal liberals are uh, doing an amazing reform to employment insurance, and the result of that reform to employment insurance is the same as as, uh, as subsidized daycare. And uh, essentially what it means is that women who are, uh, who are out of the labor force uh, one of the reasons they stayed out of the labor force is because the program is very generous. When you have the reform that makes the program less generous, then the cost of staying out of the labor market is actually greater, so you have to re-enter. When you adjust for that and you try to say, okay, let's compare with the provinces that were most affected by the reform to employment insurance because then in that group, you get Quebec that gets the effect of employment insurance reform, but only n the daycare. And then the Atlantic provinces that are also heavily affected by employment insurance, but not the daycare reform, they actually you find an effect that yes, Quebec mothers did went back to work, but the number is probably closer to ten thousand a year extra, not oh my 60,
0: So, with the implications of that being what? So, if if it is only ten thousand additional women going back, generating income taxes, what percentage of the overall cost of daycare? does that incremental increase in taxes cover? Because that's the argument that is being made about why we approach this is, oh, it'll pay for itself. And I've heard that argument. You're saying no,
1: 40%. Roughly roughly 40%. Uh, And let's notice something. Quebec was exceptional amongst Canadian provinces. Uh, Quebec had the lowest rate of women labor force participation in Canada at that time. One of the lowest. Prince Edward Island was close, but Prince Edward Island is four people. that's, that's me making a joke. If, if there's a, there's a colleague of mine, I know he listens to some of my stuff. He's from Prince Edward Island. I just made a stab, a jab at him. Uh, but anyways, so. Uh, <laughs> You're going to be
0: hearing about it. He's going to email you. I think it's yeah, about the size of uh, our, one of our mid-sized cities, right, Jerry? Yes, I think there's about a yes. hundred thousand people. It
1: is, <laughs> it is beautiful. I, I love, I, I honestly love Prince Edward Island, but it's it's always fun to, to take a, a quick jab at, at PEI. Uh, but, uh, the idea here is that, uh, Quebec was so low that the policy was bound to have an effect uh, in that environment because there was so much slack. Now, if you compare with places like Alberta, British Columbia, Saskatchewan, Ontario, Manitoba, these provinces have not only historically, but at that time and now very high level of labor force participation for women, especially Alberta, suggesting that the lower tax rates do play for something in the story, uh, in that environment, uh, you are much less likely to have an effect from subsidizing daycare. Hmm. Because the women that are probably out of the labor force by that point, there are some of them that we have to respect their choices. Some of them actually make a like a deliberate choice to leave the labor force. So some women actually use motherhood. So we have like a small literature on this that some use some some mothers use motherhood to take a time to retrain, to reenter a new field. And then because that's in the way they're structuring their decision, they are not likely to be very sensitive to reducing the cost of childcare. Uh, Some women actually make it a choice to be uh, mothers at home. And it's their dedication to that. And it's their choice. But People like this are marginal. They're not a great number, but because they are so marginal, they're unlikely to be affected by say a 15, 20, 25% reduction in a daily cost of sending your kid to daycare. So they won't change their behavior because of that, because they're so far away from that particular change in marginal cost. Now, if you made daycare, like for them, you gave them like a thousand dollars to send their kids to daycare. Some of them probably would, uh, but the reality is that it's a situation, unless you do something extreme, they won't react. And in places like Alberta, where the labor force participation is already very high for mothers, you are in that situation where the policy is unlikely to replicate whatever Quebec was able to do because Quebec was starting from so far behind everybody else except Prince Edward Island.
0: Isn't that interesting? Because that makes the case for why childcare policies should be determined at the provincial level based yes. on provincial conditions as opposed to a single national approach based on the model in Quebec. So that yep. thank you for that because I, I think that's a, a great argument. Now let me let me ask you if you have if we should be looking at a couple of other layers because maybe just looking at the incremental increase in the mother's um income tax that she's or income that she's paying in the tax that she's paying, maybe we actually have to look at the fact that she would have a reduced as you termed it, scarring on her uh, employment record. So maybe over time she would end up paying more on income taxes than if she stayed at home longer. Maybe we also have to look at the level of income taxes that all the additional workers that are in the daycare system are being paid as another benefit that we get, just, just so that we're not understating the benefit of the program. Is there some merit to that?
1: Well, the thing is the problem with subsidies, and this is where, again, I don't wanna get too technical, is that you, by subsidizing something, you are pushing people into doing more of something that they wouldn't have done before under a free market. So that means that you have to reallocate resources from other sectors. So when you take like a general equilibrium approach, it could be that you are subsidizing daycare, and as a result, there's more daycare worker, but that could mean that, for example, industries that were competing for these workers. So it could be nursing care. It could be... Elderly care, uh, it could be uh, uh, primary teachers, or you could look at these. In these sectors, you'll find that they are forced to pay higher wages to attract workers. Mm-hmm. They're less able, so they'll have be forced to some degree to reduce output. Uh, so subsidies, like, have this distortionary effect uh, that have ramifications, which is why, when we take, like, a, like, an even bigger approach than just that very small market, the benefits become even harder and harder to defend to the point that there's clearly like a very high cost to society. The one argument, and I'm very big on being generous to, to people who I disagree with because it's, 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 a, it's a sign not only of respect but of understanding what they're trying to get at. There is one very good argument that they have regarding the importance of child care. And that importance is that kids, uh, early childhood development, is very 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 i could keep going for an hour with the very uh related to later life outcomes uh kids who have early good early developments have high incomes they have higher soft skills and when i mean soft skills it's soft skills are determined are stuff like Interpersonality, the ability to, de- to communicate, to socialize, to uh, uh, solve abstract problem, convert abstract information into practical information. Uh, these soft skills are much more important than cognitive skills to development. And uh, early childhood policies have a big, 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 big effect on, on these. And so some of the arguments that some people will, based on that literature, will make is that by subsidizing daycare, by sending kids to daycare, uh, you will improve their these kids' development. And so the returns are going to be late and then come 10, 15, 25 years from now, uh, which is not an unreasonable argument, given that the literature on early childhood outcomes is pretty consensual. There are debates here and there on some technicalities, but no one disagrees that this is a big deal. This is a really big deal. It's actually probably one of the low-hanging fruits that, mm. that we have.
0: Well, But, but you're going to give me the results. But tell me when you're talking about early childhood development. Because, again, my thinking is around do we have. So zero to ten. So yep. the first two years we are encouraging kids to be at home with mom or dad. And Not then there's this.
1: It would well, with the like- with the
0: with the, I was just saying with the eat with the maternity and paternity leave policy that we have, we're encouraging people, kids to stay or parents to stay home for two years. Oh, okay, that's what you mean? You see what I mean? And then, yeah. and then there's this middle period from age three to five that we're trying to solve this problem with the subsidized daycare. And then once they hit five, now they're already in the K to 12 education system. So we're looking at, so I'm, I'm trying to understand what is the, you're saying, so the early childhood development, zero to 10, most important. Is there, is there anywhere along that spectrum where, where it's most important is is the three to five year age group, the most crucial one?
1: Uh, zero to six is the most important bit, but there's still some big effect up to ten. Mm-hmm. That's when uh, kids' brains are very malleable, uh, so they're they're very very influenced by early development. Uh, so uh, this would be where you would try. And there's a, for example, James Heckman, who is the the Nobel laureate in economics from, I'm gonna say 2000 and. 2000. I'm not sure. I don't remember the year, but he is really big on that literature. And he keeps pointing out, uh, that the two to six is probably even more important than zero to six. And then there's some people will probably know her when I mention her because she has a lot of these, she's an economist from Brown university, but she has these books that are, that have become wide public. Uh, Emily Oster, uh, she has crib sheet, uh, expecting better, and family sheet, which is basically tree tree books destined destined to parents, early young kid parents or pregnant mothers about the economics of pregnancy and early childhood. And she's like a world class researcher, and she just makes the literature completely accessible. And it has information like should you circumcise your kids? Uh, like are there like because there's a there's a big debate like why for example Americans Americans have high rates of circumcisions uh, in kids, Canadians do not, Europeans do not. Why the divide? Well, she points out like she doesn't try to answer why there's a divide, but she points out that here's what the literature says about how benefits. Here's what the literature says about this. It's not clear that there's a benefit. So should you really do it? There's some signs that there might be some small benefits, but don't do it because maybe not that big given the potential downsides. So she gives access to the literature on this.
0: Interesting. Access- so, so I'm hearing you say that there's virtual unanimity across the board that this period, age two to six, absolute crucial early childhood day. development. So here's the question. Does daycare address exactly. the early childhood development needs? What does the literature show there?
1: So that's where that's where you can start disagreeing. So agreeing on whether or not childhood matters a lot is actually like I don't even know why we needed the economists to do it. It's fun to, to like it's fun for my for my craft that we needed to that we got work and we were able to to show this empirically and it's it's fun to like actually like put meat uh, around the bone. But I don't think anyone is surprised when we say childhood matters. Uh, but that is different from saying policy, which mm-hmm. policy will. Uh, achieve greater outcomes on that particular dimension uh, at the like at, in, on a net benefit for society. And that's where child, ch- child care policy is not really that big of a deal. So we have the evidence from Quebec that came in. So the work came in mostly from Kevin Meligan from the University of British Columbia, and what they find, and Michael Baker from the University of Toronto. What they find is that actually on net, a subsidized daycare in Quebec, the universal daycare program, actually caused cognitive losses for kids in the lowest uh, income strata. Um, And that actually fits with another finding from that literature is that what matters most to kids' development is not necessarily the the childcare environment they're in. It does matter. But the family connections, the role of family is of... much bigger deal. So if you were like to, de- to try and say what gives the cookie, like what gives you the cake family is like the batter, the vanilla, the, the icing and childcare is like the sprinkles you put on top. Right? Okay. It's, it's, it, it makes a cake fun. It makes a cake better, but it's not, it's not what makes the cake a cake family influences. So for example, giving parents information about, uh, tips to child rearing. So for example, the Emily Oster book, I didn't mention it for, I didn't mention that for for a particular, like I I didn't bring it in for for no reason. It's actually because that book probably has more effect than childcare policies, in my opinion, because for example, she has an entire chapter on sudden infant death, which is a big fear for for young parents that their kids just stop breeding uh, in the middle of the night, Uh, especially like the ones from zero to six. If you give parents information about uh, the medical literature and you try to break it down to them in a way that's understandable, parents actually will incorporate that very, very well. Uh, and they're the ones that matter most to a child to a child's uh, early life outcome. Uh, the same book talks about the importance of not baby baby, 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 baby to the kids, but actually talk to them, but slowly with a certain sense of being kind, but also like actually using words. Using real words. Real words. And that has probably an effect on development Mm -hmm. and these are things that probably matter more uh and in one way one thing that would matter more and that relates to what we were discussing about what else could actually cause daycare to to happen is for example if a mother becomes so for example we're talking about reducing income taxes and a mother can spend more time at home as well because uh, she gets to go to work she gets an extra income she uh she can buy vacation time with her kids she can do a series of other possibilities, these will be tied to the connection between parents and kids. And one effect, for example, is that we know uh, this from uh, from the literature is uh, there's actually like a small tie-in effect where when women go back to work, fathers actually drop a bit their hours so that fathers get more times with their kids. That is also a benefit from the policy so you can get some of the cognitive outcome that they claim just by doing some of the other policies that I've mentioned that would reduce the cost of child care by having parents more present at home by like the father have a, put a bit more time in at home, have a more even handed relationship between parent rather than having exclusively the mother or exclusively the father. Now you have like a mixture of both. So you have, really actually like have a two-parent household and it works. So you actually don't have like one parent that's continually exhausted from that one kid. And uh, you get like a mixture, you get a tag teaming, you get parents that are more patient uh, just because you've been able to create like an opportunity for where people can actually do more uh, work sharing in that situation. Um, less financial stress. For example, if you deregulate daycare and the costs are, are lower, one of the results would be that parents will Carry less stress around from other activities, and that will seep onto the kids. You can get a lot of the cognitive benefits that these people talk for subsidizing daycare by other means, accidentally, but by other means.
0: So here's where I'm caught up on what you said, because I think what some of the argument that you would hear social activists and equity groups argue is the reason you want to do this is because the lower income individuals might not, it might be that a household is low income because there is only a single parent. It it might be that um, there are uh, factors uh, uh, around having to work extra hours, perhaps they're low income, perhaps there's English as a second language learning needs um, or issues. And so you would expect that the social activists would argue that this is an equity producing outcome, you want the lowest income families to have access to this. And you just told me that that you're seeing cognitive decline in the very income group that this program you would think would be the strongest argument for implementing it. What is happening there?
1: This is because these people are conflating uh, equity and uh, heterogeneity. You should care. Kids are incredibly different. Uh, there is, you, and not only that, but they will vary according to the milieu they're in, the cultural backgrounds of their parents. Uh, there's a lot of varying factors, which means that a one size fits all is not going to work well. And bureaucracies are not good at allowing. So if you bureaucratize, create a form of monopoly, regulate it and don't allow a market to create product product variety, what you're going to end up with is a one-size-fits-all and kids don't fare well in one-size-fits-all a market that tries to say cater to different margins so for example you have a daycare for kids who have say for example uh, development problems so for example you would you would include these uh spectrums kids on the spectrum uh you would have mixed groups for example there's so because sometimes apparently now i'm not very familiar with that particular aspect of the literature but sometimes there's some arguments being made that uh, kids with on the spectrum actually do need to be around a a decent proportion of kids that are not on the spectrum uh, so that at least like they learn to socialize to some degree or control their emotions uh, so that they can at least not control but read their emotions because that's a very difficult problem for for kids on the spectrum is understanding what they're feeling uh and speak it properly to 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 parents uh so in in environments like these like this is an, an area where markets will be able to see and because they have an incentive by the profit motive to cater to particular groups of parents to offer personalized services Bureaucracies are not able mm. to do this. They have to do a one size fits all that the bureaucrats and the Department of Family can actually uh, read and make legible. But when you make it legible and you make it a one size fits all, you're bound to have some kids that are square pegs and round holes, and thus you get the losses that you uh, that I've mentioned for Quebec. That is the, the economic reasoning behind, because you've lost the virtue of the flexibility in creating an erogeneity in in service of product variety, you've lost this from the competitive aspect of the market. And that's why uh, not only can you get the benefits in terms of childhood development by other policies that don't meddle with market, that actually reduce the shadow of government on markets, but you're actually going to, you are more likely to get them, but with government, you're unlikely to get them and you may actually do more harm because of this inerrant feature of of government, which is that they can't, Unless they just give the money to people, which is the one policy I'd be okay with, just give people just give them a voucher, just give them like hmm. a transfer that's income modulated. If you really care about the poor and you care that they need to have access to some child care, then you just give them cash. You just say, Here's a thousand dollars, send your kid to daycare if you want.
0: Right. You just, okay. That's it. Well, good cuz i was i was getting um i was getting concerned because i my approach to daycare is i really do want to see a targeted approach to those most in need so yep. i was wondering well how do we address this low income group you've kind of answered that question but let's talk and I'll, and we may come back to it but i want to talk more broadly about why it is that the Quebec program is structured the way it is because it i'll tell you an irritation for me it goes to this entire point of equity is yes we realize as you pointed out that you want to have some of those high paying professions like nurses or teachers or lawyers continue to have seamless employment but they're also high income earners and so if you've got a family of two lawyers and some of the lawyers here i'm not sure how it is in quebec some of the lawyers here make 300,000 a year so two family um lawyers 600,000 a year why in the world do they need subsidized daycare my exactly. view is they should pay for it themselves, and so I can. So to me, the argument, the argument of universality falls down for the very reason of why you want to get high paid women back into the workforce. You get the the, the the reward and the extra income in itself should be enough to pay, and and general taxpayers shouldn't have to subsidize that. Now I, I may be in the minority on this because clearly people like a universal approach to this. But what what is the alternative argument? Why? Why has this program been implemented in a way that's universal?
1: Uh, That part, I I still have a hard time understanding it because there's a lot of moving pieces and things that were probably said behind closed doors that we don't know. The part that we do know for sure is that in Quebec, uh, the unions have loved this because in subsidized daycare, you get, uh, by having a, a unified network, you get one party negotiating with another party, rather than having a, a host and a slew of different uh, unions to, to deal with, uh, mm. so that you are simplifying labor relations from the perspective of the unions. Uh, and the other part is that you're actually reducing competition. So for the union, what you're essentially doing is that by increasing the demand for their services, you are making it more likely that they're able to extract higher wages uh, from the government because they're essentially crowding out the portions of the private market. And This is where I'm very uncomfortable with the idea of actually saying this is the way it has to be produced. Now, I'm not fond of actually like even vouchers for for child care uh, because I think that the policies I've mentioned earlier are, are going to yield the effect that we want. Uh, but if we have to, and I wouldn't mind like doing a compromise because I'm, I'm not an unreasonable person you don't you you can't tell the market how to produce the service you have to just help an. In, you have to produce an income modulated approach so poor parents get more than rich parents and actually rich parents would actually get close to nothing and you just say okay if you're very poor because the cost is the same for everyone right to find the, the monetary cost my, my, my apologies the, given that the monetary cost is the same for everyone, the opportunity cost is greater for poor household, which is why you would want to compensate them more than rich households. Uh, then you transfer according to income, but then you don't have this – you don't create the distortions in the market. You still allow the product variety to come in, and you are actually helping, at the very least, the people who need access to this and thus have some of the cognitive benefits that we've mentioned earlier. But these, you can get them without a universal program. You actually do target something that's more uh, that's more geared to, to poor families. So, again, it's not that the people who are advocating this have a bad intention. Some people, I do think, are there in for their own benefit. But the vast majority of it are arguing it from a public interest perspective. But if you really do it from a public interest perspective, there are other policies that are more cost effective that – uh, not only are cheaper, that's what I should say, but also yield much more benefits uh, in the long run. Uh, so these are the ones we should be pursuing. Now, these are the ones that are less flashy, so that they're less desirable for politicians. politician. You'll notice we've been talking about this for an hour now. Uh, this is something that's really long to explain. The, the roundabout ways I've mentioned to reduce the cost of daycare would require, for example, like I said, I mentioned land use regulation that would deregulate uh, the construction of new buildings so that the housing supply goes up in a way that reduces rents for child care centers. Uh, same thing with uh, uh, with the deregulation of certain aspects of quality uh, so that it actually relates to uh, market mechanisms. By the way, I don't even believe that the government needs to regulate that much the quality of daycare. Mm-hmm. You have a million websites on there that provide evaluations, that have the reference systems. You have care.com. Uh, You have reviews online, you have uh, testimonies, they have have the equivalent of an ISO norm, which should tell you that the market is able to produce the checks and balances that are necessary for parents to ensure uh, the quality. And in the competitive markets, the more you allow possibilities to come in, then it will matter to people.
0: Well, let's talk about that because I know that you have made an expertise in studying competition, and I think that is a really important aspect of this of why it, why competition is important. And, and I'm I'm persuaded by the argument that uh, lower income parents will need some support. I'm persuaded by the argument that a voucher system that phases it over time is probably the, the most effective way of replicating a market type of model. But tell us what the consequences have been of doing the opposite i want to understand what some of the pitfalls are that we want to avoid in quebec because i think the sense that we have outside of quebec is that it operates very much like the k-12 education system that everybody has access no there are no waiting lists no one has to pay a tuition fee you're intermingling kids from a variety of different backgrounds and incomes in the same classroom it's utopia. That's it. so. I think that's the model we think exists in this in this early childhood area. What is the reality of what exists?
1: So initially, when the program started in Quebec, there were very long waiting lists. Uh, so there were a lot of people, parents who were waiting, and one of the effects of the policy was that the the private sector got crowded out for a few years. But eventually, the waiting list got so costly that private non subsidized daycare has been exploding in the last. Decade or so, Uh, from initially in the early two thousand, a few years after the reform, private non-subsidized daycare. uh, If I remember properly from my study, I'm trying to forget. I'm not trying, trying not to forget the the proportions. Was I think close to zero point five percent, so less than a percent. That was something like that. It was an insanely low proportion of of places that were being fulfilled. That were fulfilled by private operators. Uh, today, we're talking in excess of 20%. I just found the number. So it was 0.98% in 2003, 8% in 2011, and 21% in 2017. So the reality is that the day, the waiting lists got so incredibly uh, long that the result was that uh, the only ones who were willing to provide it was actually the private sector. This is and if we are talking about testimony to the efficacy of the program, uh, uh, I actually like this is it, it even cuts even bigger against the argument that people have made that uh, that it actually uh, had massive development on outcomes on kids is that they're using all kids together, but they're forgetting that you need to control for, for example, kids who went to private daycares. Uh, So when you adjust for that, there will probably be even more of an effect that goes in the direction of what I'm talking about. Uh, Quebec has been able to satisfy the rising demand, not because of the program, but because markets work uh, in spite of government intervention, which is incredibly telling.
0: Do you, do you think that so why wouldn't they have just expanded the number of spaces to meet the demand i mean it's because the way you, I would look at it uh, if I could argue this is that the in the k-12 education system we have choice and parents would choose to put their child in a private school for a variety of reasons it's not gosh I can't get my child in a public school therefore I have to pay out of pocket and I'm wondering if there's a dynamic there are people choosing that they would want to have? a private daycare option, or is it they have no choice, they need childcare and they're they're paying out of pocket? It seems like that would be an easy policy solution to just expand the number of spaces. What am I missing?
1: I would say that there's two things. One of the reasons why the the private daycares are also growing in terms of numbers, Quebec has been having a really good time relative to other provinces in Canada. Quebec has been for the last 15 years, that actually people keep forgetting this, but has been the fiscal discipline champion of Canadian provinces. Quebec has had one of the fastest rates of economic growth, especially when you compare to, well, not the fastest, but very fast. So it's been converging with the rest of Canada since the early 1990s, and it's been catching up, and most of the gap is now closed. Well, that says that Quebec is growing more productive, and by growing more productive, wages are going up, and more and more people can afford the cost of daycare. Now, the thing is, is that means that in the ration system, where it's the public system that can't offer more space because it has to be paid by... By raising essentially taxes, uh, the space is going to be limited, but the richer parents can now afford the private childcare system. So the reason why it works is that the, the not that the program works is that Quebec is doing so much better on other margins that these mechanisms can be developed and employed. Uh, so that's how I I put it. And the reason why the government doesn't want to increase the number of spots is that by being subsidized. Uh, like to a high degree, they'd be the ones raising their their costs uh, massively. And the fact that they don't, by the way, pretty much to me, confirms that there is no extra revenues. Because if it was that much of a cheap shot, Mm -hmm. they would actually just offer to subsidize places and it would generate enough revenues to pay for itself. The fact that they're not doing it is pretty much a confirmation that that's not a self-paying program.
0: Okay, now you've got all of my Albertans upset, seeing that the gap is closed with Quebec, but Quebec continues to get large equalization transfers, as well as this additional tranche of money that's coming in for the daycare yeah. program. But that, I'll talk to another academic about that one. That's yes. gonna be a follow-up conversation. But um, maybe I should I should ask you um, another aspect of this, which is, is there value in just being able to free up more personal income in the hands of the family? I'm trying to, uh, to understand, if there is another economic value that I'm not considering, because you'd mentioned how sensitive women are to income tax reductions. If you're going to help to defray, call it 50% of the cost of, of daycare, that puts more ha- money in the hands of individuals, which would have a stimulating effect to the economy. You should be able to track that there's some benefit of that. Is there is there an argument to be made there?
1: Uh, yes. Uh, so first of all, the effect of tax cuts on economic growth. It's not that big. Uh, it's its not negative, but it's not the, the most gigantic uh, largely because Canada is not that much of a high tax district. It's not like a low tax district. Let's get this right. But a, a small reduction would not have a big, big impact. Deregulation is probably the kind of stuff that would generate more growth, but deregulations on like say stuff that isn't related to daycare. So we're, we're moving a bit far behind. So say Allowing more competition to Canadian economy because of some of my other work with the Fraser Institute, allowing foreign firms to enter the Canadian market more easily to increase competition, say, for cell phone services, for airline services would reduce the cost of living enough that people would actually get more personal income. And by grinding more personal income, mm-hmm. that basically means that they're more productive. By being more productive, that means that they can actually afford daycare more easily now. Uh, so that would be one way, again, a roundabout way to get to, to your result is you want – people to be so much rich that daycare is an easy thing to afford. And it's, a, it's an even like an afterthought, like buying bread at the grocery store. Uh, well, one way to do so is to keep increasing productivity. Now, that's a really roundabout way. It's not going to create like a tomorrow solution, but it's not going to hurt. It's going to help. Uh, so that's probably one of the ways I would tie in some of my other work. Now, obviously, anything that actually increases the personal income of people so they can make more choices, they have access to more choices than before, is something you'd want to have.
0: But is there some loss that you have by taxing the money away and then rebating it back through a system like we're oh. talking about with the, with the daycare? I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out. I'm, I'm, I really am tr- trying to find all of the benefits that we can out of the the Quebec approach, since it seems to be the one that's going to be the standard across the country.
1: Uh, I don't see much. I <laughs> the idea- the idea that we tax people and then redistribute it and that there this has no cost a bureaucracy has cost the taxation itself changes the incentives of political players and the reality is is that in quebec we've seen that largely by the constant battle between the daycare unions and the the provincial governments and the fact that there's always uh strikes that happen throughout the network and when they do so there's Mm -hmm. a massive discontent for people saying, why are we blocked service? Uh, this is somewhat uh, makes people somewhat uneasy. So I don't I don't see any benefit, to be honest. It's it's the kind of uh, well intended policy. I get why where some people are coming from, uh, but they're not seeing that it's the outcome are not what they have descri- what has been described. It's not that beneficial. Uh, the benefits are very, very much smaller than what's being advertised. The costs are much greater than, than what's being advertised, and you could get these benefits that we've mentioned at a much cheaper way by these roundabout mechanisms that, that I've discussed. And it would so, be even better if it was provincialized, not federalized. Uh, federal pro- any any form of federal program. I just mean uh, you're from Alberta, from yeah. Quebec. Uh, you and I are have massively different environment in which we evolve. Uh, even just culturally speaking, just the, the, the French difference is a big deal. You, you can't have a, a one-size-fits-all policy that's federal and then goes down to the provinces. At the very least, the provinces should be allowed to try their own different sets of policies and compete with one another. That would be much, much better than what's being discussed
0: one other aspect I wanted to talk to you about. So the, the $5 a day daycare, what that didn't stay in place. It's moved well, up now, right? Is no, it $10? So, or tell us the, tell us the evolution of the, of, the, of the payment system there.
1: It went to $7 in 2004, I want to say. I'm not forgetting exactly when. Now there's a modulated fee. Don't ask me the, the formula. if completely, it slips out of my mind every time. Uh, but now it's an it's a formula for your daily fees for the subsidized one that go according to your income. So we've gone back to a, what we basically had before but with more with more hurdles in the way because before what Quebec had was an income modulated system with tax credits that that had some flaws that are very technical, and I don't want to get into it. it. was largely to do with the frequency of payment and the cash constraint that people had on a daily basis. That was basically the argument for it back in the 90s. Uh, but today we are, we're back to this. We have an income modulated fee, but within the public's, the the, 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 the subsidized sector. So is it, it's, why, why do we bother having like the, the government produced one rather than just letting it into the market and doing an, an income targeted transfer. So Quebec has actually like start from like the the ideal universal program that they had at the beginning and how they've tinkered with it so much that it doesn't look like anything universal mm-hmm. anymore. So it's even Quebec has admitted by default that this was not this was not a good set of policy. It's been abandoned in everything but name
0: which makes sense i can i can understand from a political point of view that if you've not been able to offer spaces to everyone and then you have a subsidized sector and a non-subsidized sector you'd kind of have to look at who got access to those spaces in the subsidized sector. And if it turned out to be more high income individuals, that becomes a really difficult political sell <laughs> because then it looks like you're transferring money from those who are lower and middle income to those who are higher income. I'm just put, positing that as a hypothesis. Did did that actually occur? Was it the case that those who were higher income had, had an easier time accessing those subsidized so, spaces?
1: So before the modulated fee, the one that have started, I think 2012, 2014, don't quote me on the dates, I'm forgetting the timeline is a bit blurry for when they made the changes in fee structures. But when it was the five and seven dollar a day, uh, when that was the case, there was a, a paper by a fiscalist from the University of Quebec in Montreal, who actually checked according to your income class, uh, if you gained or lost from relative to the previous regime where you had a form of targeted income tax credit. Uh, What he found is obviously very low income households did gain, very rich income households gain. The people in the middle from say, these were from numbers based on 1997, so the numbers are going to be much lower, but people who were between 20,000. So the average GDP per capita in the 1990s in Quebec was in the 20,000s, right? So today it's much higher, but like it's just, it's just the numbers, right? So we just like try to just imagine proportion. The 60 people that would constitute like the middle class, they were actually on net. They lost financially from the program. They were better off with the previous system Hmm. than they were with the new one. Uh, But the rich, the very rich, some people in the top 10% up roughly, uh, they actually gained. Uh, They actually had uh, substantial uh, financial gains uh, from this. Uh, and only the very poor, which you do care about, did gain. But their gains were, uh, I would say, trivial proportionally to those of the very rich because previously the tax rates for the very rich were relatively low. Uh, for the poor, they were relatively high. Now, the subsidy was so big that for the poor, losing the, the tax credit was not a net loss, but it wasn't a big gain. For the rich, you were losing something small and you gained something pretty big. Uh, so the effect was very uneven. So that was one of the big criticisms at first, and which is why eventually uh, they went, they bought back some tax credits so that people using the private system would use it to some degree more so that the wait list would stop. Uh, they also uh, uh, brought in the modulated fees. And essentially all of these amount to kind of a capitulation on the the statement that this is a great program. No, it's not. It's It's been uh it's been a disappointment a failure would be too strong failure is like has like an utter sense of objection to it while a disappointment is more accurate uh it's it it didn't live up to to its promise it and you could have got what you wanted so much cheap so much so much better in different ways uh so eh (laughs)
0: Well, this is why it becomes an interesting challenge because I'm wondering if the uh, federal guidance on this is based on how the program originally was and how it was envisioned versus what it has ultimately become. So it it helps to give us some kind of guidance about what other provinces should be considering. Let me just ask you about now this modulated fee that you're talking about. Does it ultimately phase out? I mean, do you get to a high enough income where you don't get any subsidy at all, or is there always some portion of the, the cost of childcare that is paid for in the subsidized daycare setting,
1: I, regardless I of your income. It hmm. doesn't fade out to zero, right? So okay. it's not as if like people, like say at $150,000 a day uh, get to like pay the market price, right? Uh, they always get some subsidies, but I think, I forget, like I don't wanna, don't quote me on the numbers, but past a certain relatively high threshold, you're you're getting a subsidy, but it's a pretty trivial one. And I would be surprised how much rich parents are using the public. use the subsidized system in that case, given the wait list, uh, because now the subsidy is so much smaller now that you're like, eh, what's the difference between, say, the, the the going market rate of $50 a day or $45 a day relative to, say, 15 or something like this?
0: Well, that makes some sense then. So that could also explain why we've seen the increase then. On the private side, is if there isn't the advantage to to get uh, into a subsidized space because you're paying close to market rates anyway, then you you may as well um, avoid the hassle of trying to to do the wait. How significant are the wait lists? Maybe I should try to understand that. I too. haven't
1: I haven't updated the numbers since 2017, so I haven't caught up with the the, the wait list largely because uh, I've been focused on how many mothers went back to work, which is why I'm what I'm putting the most attention to right now yeah. in terms of research. Uh, but also uh, the importance, and this is maybe like a, a good spot to for me to conclude on, like kind of as a way to invite myself in the future. Uh, since since I also care a lot about the the area that the Fraser does with economic freedom, uh, and by the way, I have a chapter in the in the, uh, the next edition of the Economic Freedom of the World Index for those who are interested. Like I'm just literally just plugging my own work. But some of the work I'm doing with Diana Thomas in daycare, uh, which I've mentioned when she's the one that did the work on regulation, we're trying to see right now, what's the effect of uh, economic freedom on women's or more precisely, mother's labor market participation, their earnings, the wage gap, uh, conditional on government regulations of childcare. So how much childcare are inhibiting or uh minimizing in a certain way the benefits of economic freedom to uh women's outcomes so that's the work we're, we're doing now and uh this is where i think people uh, and the way that I'm, the reason why i'm trying to conclude with this is that uh people underestimate the importance of market in uh promoting better outcomes because in a competitive market the virtue that you have is continual feedback loops bureaucratic processes don't have this And uh, by having this feedback loop, you can adjust the service, you can adjust the quantity, you can adjust the margin, you can increase the the way it's being provided. People can explore new ways. They can mix different arrangements because you had that before. You had part-time daycares and people who were using grandparents as substitutes to, to this because they cared about a mixed family environment. These are options that people would explore more in a competitive environment something else and it would would explore those that are most fitted to them which is why you would say that environments that are less regulated that offer the greatest set of options to workers to try and experiment to to play and you give them the most resources to experiment with rather than having this is how you're going to consume it you're more likely to have the outcomes you want so those that are beneficial to kids development but also to the development of of mothers who are not uh, scarred by their uh, a too long away sojourn from, from the market, uh, you can get all these benefits in very roundabout ways, but in a way that much more sustainable, cheaper and more effective. That's the way I'd put it
0: it's going to be very well timed because we're going to be plunged into this discussion about the best way to deliver child care and support women over the next year so thank you so much for the work that you do thank you for the conversation today that was vincent glosso he is a professor of economics at george mason university as well as a senior fellow of the fraser institute thanks for being with us it was a pleasure We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you like what you heard, be sure to subscribe on YouTube and wherever you stream your podcasts. And to stream old episodes, learn more about the show, and where to subscribe and submit your questions for future guests, visit FraserForum.org.